So Rachel set this up for us last week, the summer of the Psalms, where we will be taking a look at a few key Psalms over the course of the next few weeks as a means of celebrating their rich diversity while exploring major themes on how they can help us draw into a closer relationship with God. Uh, I love the richness, the richness and the beauty that are found in the Psalms, and I find that we can always return to them as a means of finding something in common with God's people, not just God's people of the ancient world, but every generation that's come through the church. And I like to remember in times that uh, it wasn't just the, the writers of the Psalms that used these words because these Psalms were sung. Many of these Psalms were sung in the synagogues and in the temple, and Jesus himself shared uh, in these powerful lyrics. Now think about the emotions that are represented and expressed in the Psalms. And there's some really cool and amazing and pertinent texts that can help us today on a number of different levels. Now typically the Psalms are thought of as a tool or, or a means of worship, and that's certainly kind of where we're heading today, but they're about more than just that. So I hope that as these next series or these next few weeks unfold uh, during this series, that'll become evident. Now, it should come no surprise to you that many of the worship songs that we enjoy here today uh, at Revolution are, are derived from many of the psalms. So I've made a short list. This is not an exhaustive list, just to give you just a few examples. For example, I Am Not Alone or You Never Let Go is all obviously pulled from the 23rd Psalm. Open Up Our Eyes, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Psalm 119. Our God, Whom Shall I Fear, Psalm 27. He is my fortress, Psalm 91. Great are you, Lord, Psalm 96. Blessed be your name, Psalm 113. And how great thou art, the eighth Psalm. And the one that we're going to be taking a look at today, my favorite one, the 103rd Psalm. And obviously the song that we just sang, Praise the Lord, was written almost word for word from the 103rd Psalm as well as 10,000 Reasons. Spoiler alert, we may be doing that one later. Of all the uh, psalms of worship, in my opinion, and that's worth everything you paid for it, there is not a better roadmap of the hows and the whys to worship than Psalm 103. In fact, Christian commentator Matthew Henry, this guy was around during the 17th and the 18th century, a big contributor, he refers to the 103rd Psalm as one of the most useful of all the psalms. In fact, he goes on to say that this psalm caused more for devotion than exposition. In other words, what he's basically saying is that it really doesn't need to be dissected. It doesn't need to be explained. It's not meant to be uh, exegeted, although that's what we're going to do some of this morning. That's a pretty big word. Exegeted. I know, I, I've been waiting all day to use it, Dave. <laughs> but really, it's meant to be absorbed and meditated on. It really is self-explanatory, and it's one of the easiest biblical passages, I think, to read and to understand, and it's so applicable to all generations. So we're not going to tear this thing apart too much. Um, in fact, it's, it, it's 22 stanzas, 22 verses, so if I were to try to break it down, you guys would not make it to the Cracker Barrel. So we're just going to focus on a small section. So I'll explain to that uh, what section we're going to look at here in a moment and the why. But for right now, I think what I would like to do is read this psalm over you. 
Okay, I don't, I don't want you to lose any of it. I don't want you to lose the beauty of it by worrying about keeping up the cadence of reading together. In fact, if you feel led and you just want to close your eyes and just soak it in or, or just use this time as a moment of meditation and worship in whatever manner uh, that you see fit. And here we go. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, and redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Word of God for the people of God. Amen. Well, first of all, we can't overlook the beauty in how this psalm is written. Of course, this was written by King David. And King David is credited for writing uh, 73 of the psalms, which is almost half of the entire book of psalms. And he may have written more because some of the psalms are uncredited. So we really don't know for sure exactly how many he wrote, but at least 73. David was a poet. David was a wordsmith. And I don't want you to miss out on this. The other day I'm thumbing through Facebook and, and I came across this article that Rolling Stone had on the 100 greatest songwriters of all time. And on this list are some of the great names as you can imagine like Bob Dylan or Jim Croce or uh, Kurt Cobain was on it, um, Bruce Springsteen, Taylor Swift, whoever that is. James Taylor, who else? Can y'all think of any songwriters that should have been on the list? 
Jackson Brown, who? John Lennon, Neil Young, Paul McCartney. From the back, what'd you say? John Prine. I can't hear you, Lord. What'd you say? Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> I'm not sure he made the list, but I know, right? I think he was on the best accordion player list, though. That was the list he made. Chris Christopherson. Yes, he was definitely on. These are all really, really great songwriters. But I want to make an argument here. I believe that there's an argument to be made that David may have been the greatest songwriter of all time. First, we need to understand how hard it is for us English-speaking Westerners to appreciate the depth of his writing because we're limited by our translations. See, there's nuances of his writing style that gets lost in the different translations. Certain patterns, certain acrostics that were used, certain rhyming schemes, the way the Hebrew alphabet was used. So many things that could reflect the brilliance of David's songwriting is, is lost on us. David was also a musician, and I think sometimes we forget that. Okay, we, we tend to think of David as the shepherd or the giant slayer or the king on the throne. But the truth of the matter is, he, he, he learned how to play the guitar of his time. They called it the lyre or the harp, as you may have heard. So he was able to create melodies for these tunes. So there's hidden melodies that we'll never get to hear because they were just lost in time. Of course, other melodies were added at some point later. And eventually, maybe some liberties might have had to have been taken with the translations to account for different phrasing and rhyming schemes. And eventually, those melodies were lost. I mean, these psalms have been around for millennia. And any adjustments that have been made between the very beginning and now have been lost, regained, and lost, and reclaimed. Perhaps the most compelling argument for consideration of David being the best songwriter of all time is I, David had the greatest muse that there ever was. David was writing for Yahweh. David wrote for God. And David had a close relationship with God. So a few notable facts about this psalm. First of all, it's, it's what they call a sandwich psalm. Okay, the first phrase of the psalm is the same one as the last phrase. The first line and the last line are exactly the same. This is common in this book of psalms, especially in the Davidic psalms. It's also a technique that's still used today. It's, it's something that they do to reinforce a point. A song may start and end with the exact same phrase. This technique is called an envelope. Who knew that? Who's the songwriters out there? The envelope. It's really common in country music, by the way. I don't know if you guys remember Alan Jackson. He wrote this song called, um, Where Were You? Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? Well, that September day. Song opened with that phrase and it ended with that phrase, just an example. Or, we were both young when I first met you. <laughs> Come on, I'm doing this for you, Megan. <laughs> That's not even accurate. I mean, she did it a lot, though. Almost all of her country tunes use the envelope system. And I'm not talking about Dave Ramsey's envelope system. I'm talking about the envelope system. So it's a, common, it's a common technique. 
Also, a word used frequently in this psalm is the word all. I don't know if you caught it, but I read it a lot. The psalm is meant to be comprehensive. It affirms that God, who rules over all and does all good for all persons in need, is to be praised in all places by all creatures with all of their being. Now, many of the psalms were written in acrostic form, and anybody that's ever watched Sesame Street or came to celebrate recovery on Wednesday night is familiar with the acrostics. Now, in the Hebrew language, the acrostics had 22 verses if they used every Hebrew letter because there were 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse began with its sequential letter of the alphabet. Now, again, not a style that we can fully enjoy or appreciate because most of us can't read Hebrew. And although Psalm 103 was not a true acrostic in this manner, it did have 22 verses. So the writer, King David, is trying to establish a consistent rhythm and length. It's, it's as if, as many scholars believe and want to say, he wanted to say it all by using the number of Hebrew literary completion, the number 22. Now the psalm can be broken up into three different sections. Verses 1 through 5 is David's personal experience our personal experience of God's love and compassion. Verses 6 through 19 are the attributes of God as seen in God's interaction with God's people. And verses 20 through 22 is David's call to all creatures to join him in the everlasting praise of Yahweh. Now, again, we don't have time to cover all this. We're just going to focus on the first five verses. So if you guys will just sit tight, we're going to blow through these lines really quick and we'll get you out of here, get you onto the cracker barrel on time. Deal? All right. Now David starts the psalm, David starts the envelope with this familiar phrase. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Now there's a lot of meat right here. A lot of meat. First of all, don't miss out on who David is addressing. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to God. In fact, he's talking to himself, right? To be more specific, he's talking to his own soul. That would be the literal explanation of what he is saying. But what he's, in fact, implying here is that God deserves our full worship, every fiber of our being, not just our lips, not just our body, not even just our heart, but our very soul, the part of us that transcends the human experience, the part of us that is connected to this world, but the part of us that is disconnected from this world, our inner being, our soul. It's a spiritual experience, this act of worship. And we often forget to see things this way because when we think of worship, uh, we, we think of worship as a, a physical act, whether it's singing uh, or, or things that we do with our hands, whether it's clapping or raising or even dancing. And all of these are genuine acts of worship. And I'm not suggesting that they're wrong. They're certainly uh, valid acts of worship. But what they are is an outward expression of something that is connected to the divine, our souls. The depths of who we are must be the source of our worship. And David is saying here that our worship must go beyond lip service. Consider these words from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 29. The Lord says through Isaiah, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Now this passage was significant enough 
to be quoted again by Jesus in Matthew's gospel in chapter 15. So what they're saying here is that our worship is not a box to be checked. It's not something that is to be done out of obligation, but rather something to be done out of adoration, something to be done in response to our understanding of the goodness of the wonderful things that God has done for us. The point is clear. Superficial worship is worse than no worship at all. Verse 2, praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not his benefits. David is helping us out here by reminding us that we have a reason to lift up our soul to worship God. We worship God for the mighty things that he has done and that he's going to do. And then he does us a favor and he makes us a list. And it starts with this. He forgives all of our sins. Or in some translations, this may say he forgives all of our iniquities. Really not a word that we use much these days. He forgives all of our sins. And by the way, David would probably be a pretty good authority on this, wouldn't he? This is why many scholars believe that he wrote this psalm later in life when he was more mature and more experienced and more receptive and understanding of God's compassion and forgiveness. This would be well after uh, the Bathsheba incident and how he had her husband killed and, and all of those unfortunate incidents that David was involved in. And by the way, there's that word all again. He doesn't forgive some of our sins. He forgives all of our sins. I don't want you to miss this. Consider for a moment the gravity of what David is saying. Now in recovery programs, they, they do this thing called the fourth step. And, and during this fourth step, they engage in what is known as something called a moral inventory. You guys want a dose of humility? Try going back and itemizing every failure and flaw and every mistake that you have ever made. And those are just the ones that we can remember. God forgives all of our sins, the ones that we can't remember. God forgives even the worst of the worst. All means all. Consider the worst thing that you've ever done. You don't have to tell me. Please don't. It's forgiven. I point to passages like this for those who want to argue that the God in the Old Testament is not the same loving, compassionate, and gracious God as the God in the New Testament. David says he heals all of our diseases. Now, this can be a, this can be a tough one. I think about this every time that we sing this song. It's not lost on me how hard it can be to sing these words. It might be painful for some of us because I know many of us have struggled with our own health problems or we have had family members perhaps who have struggled even to the point of loss and grief. And I don't want to stay here too long because we're venturing into the topic of God's providence and that can be a pretty deep rabbit hole, but First, I want us to remember this. God did not create disease. That's not part of God's creation. When God created the heavens and the earth, everything was good. It was perfect. And that lasted for two chapters. (laughs) 
By chapter 3, we broke it all. He gave us free will, and, and we abused it. We broke it. We turned our back on God, and we started doing our own thing. And when we did that, we corrupted creation. The world became corrupt because we turned from God, and we broke it. So therefore, we live in a broken world. Disease, natural disasters, unexplainable evil, random acts of violence. These are all a result of the corruption of humanity going back to that original sin. This isn't God's work, it's ours. To keep this straight in my head, I have this phrase that I like to use, and this is, this is a really deep theological statement, and I'm going to turn it into trucker hats and bumper stickers. You guys ready? If it's not good, it's not God. It's just that simple. If it's not good, it's not God. You see, God didn't just wash his hands to all of us when we turned our back. He gave us ways to be healed. And there's four different ones that I want to address. The obvious way that he heals us is the natural way. I think it's an amazing thing. If you could watch a, a cut or, or a wound of some sort over a time-lapse video, watch it come back together all on its own, watch the cells regenerate, and watch your skin just heal up. It's, it's such an amazing, beautiful thing. The human body, the, the way the immune system works, the way it fights off the viruses. This is God's creation working in us. This is one of the ways that God heals us. God heals us also through medicine and through science. If we believe that everything in God's kingdom is ordained by God, then we have to believe that God had something to do with what happens in the doctor's office and in the hospitals. God can heal us supernaturally through miracles. You hear these stories all the time. You ever talk to a doctor or somebody in a hospital, they probably all have some story that they can't explain. Somebody showed up with this thing, then they came back a few weeks later, this thing was gone. I don't know what happened. These things actually happen. These are real-life stories. Now, why they happen to some and not others, I can't answer that. I wish I could. I wish I had that answer. And I know that's what we want. I know that's why we pray for these things. And we need to keep praying for these things because God is the one that can deliver us from these things. But I don't, I don't have a good answer for you as to why some can receive this type of healing and some others can't. And then the final way, of course, that God can bring us healing is through the bodily resurrection. And this is most likely the most beautiful, powerful way that God heals us. But we don't want to hear this, do we? It's so hard. I wish, how I wish that we could just catch a glimpse into that other realm. If we could just catch a nanosecond of, of what it looks like on that other side. How much more peace would that bring us if we were to lose those who are so dear to us? But our God is the great healer. In one way or another, God will heal all our diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. Well, there it is. Now Dave's getting personal. I can't speak for all of you, but I spent my fair share of time in the pit. I've lived up to my name. 
I mean, if you've ever struggled to the point of wondering if your existence was even necessary to the point of taking action, then you know what I'm talking about. If you have ever felt hopeless, helpless, broken, or just alone, then you know. If you've ever been consumed by the darkness to the point of giving up, then you know. If I'm describing you right now, then hear the good news. You're not alone. There is hope, and the darkness has been defeated. And the psalmist tells us that God will redeem our lives from the pit. Now, in our language, redemption implies vindication or absolution. But the original Hebrew word used here suggests something much more powerful. David is telling us that God rescues us. God delivers us from the pit. And Jesus Christ is our lifeline. But he doesn't just pull us out. He crowns us, which means he surrounds us. He protects us with his love and his mercy and his compassion. Our great and mighty God that saves, saves us from our own mess. And then he wraps us up. And this is God's word talking here. He wraps us up in a robe of righteousness that is white as snow. And then he satisfies all of our desires with good things. Our youth is renewed. It's just like Jesus told Nicodemus, be born again, a new creation, fresh, vibrant, full of energy like the eagle, every thirst quenched, every hunger satisfied. That's it. All that. From five simple verses. Beautiful, right? Amen. Amen. How beautiful is that? Surely our God is worthy of our praise. Surely our God is worthy of hearing our very souls cry out in adoration. Surely he's worthy of hearing us offer up to him our thanksgiving. May our voices be an extension of our very souls longing to offer our Lord our deliverer, our savior, our heartfelt gratitude. And may we be reminded of all that he has done and all that he will do each time that we worship, whether we're worshiping corporately like we are now or privately. May each day begin and end with this unending song. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Most gracious God, may that be our prayer. Help us to be reminded each morning as the sun cracks open that we have reason to praise you. And each evening as it sets, the same. Thank you for all that you have done in our lives that you will continue to do. And forgive us when we fail to remember and we fail to offer up the blessings that you deserve. Give us the words to sing And give us the soul to sing it with sincerity. We ask this in your holy name.